Bonjour, you are listening to Vive la Différence, a podcast on social and political debates in contemporary France, seen with through a transatlantic perspective. My name is Laurent Dubreuil. I am a professor at Cornell University. I am your host today. The history of France is largely intertwined with that of Africa. That was true already in terms of economic and intellectual exchanges with the Arab world, for instance, as early as the Middle Ages. One could think, of course, of France's first colonial empire and the transatlantic slave trade, or France's second colonial empire with the occupation of vast territories uh, on the African continent, north uh, and south. That led to the wars of independence and decolonization after World War II. Africa is a political reality within French society, within the 21st century. It is not only a place of origins for many, it is also a partner, a symbol, uh, an image of the past, an image of the future at the same time. We are discussing today some of the current relations between France and Africa. In particular, what to do with the colonial past and its enduring presence. And should we opt for repentance, for reparations, for resentment on that matter? And how could we think of a common future if there is any? To discuss these topics, I have invited Dr. Iman Termina. Iman is an assistant professor of Francophone studies at Cornell. And her work is mainly on the intersection of literature, politics and law, and especially considerations uh, about the machinery of power in a French and Francophone context. Bonjour, Iman. It's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So we are together to discuss um, the weight of the colonial past in uh, the current uh, public discussion uh, that mainly happens in French, but not only in French. Um, a discussion about uh, a past that is still with us or that is haunting us. Uh, so a past that is also a bit of a present. And unfortunately, sometimes that looks like a sort of uh, fixed future that will be uh, for in blocked in a forever time. Um, and we are discussing the relation between France and Africa, mostly. Um, each of our guests uh, begin with uh, a few biographical words. So I, I was thinking that maybe uh, it would be very interesting to, to hear you speaking about your own trajectory, I mean, intellectual trajectory, but also a uh, personal journey uh, between Northern Africa, a little bit of France, and, and mainly the United States. All right. Um, yes, so I was uh, born and raised in Morocco, uh, in Rabat particularly, and I, for most of my uh, primary and secondary schooling, I was um, attending uh, the French lycée. There. So um, I guess the inheritor of the Mission Française. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was very much sort of, uh, I, I grew up on a very, very uh, heavy diet of Balzac and Flaubert um, and all the great French novelists. Um, and I decided ultimately to come to the United States um, because I was really interested in the liberal arts uh, system here, uh, attended Mount Holyoke College um, and 
for many reasons pertaining to the fact that I was born within um, uh, um, with technocratic parents. Um, I decided to go for the sciences. Uh, so I did um, mostly biology, biochemistry, um, worked at a lab in immunology and then at Harvard Medical School for a while. Um, and while I was doing my lab work, realized that I was a lot more interested in chronic diseases than in punctual diseases. And medicine is not, modern medicine is not very good at managing basically chronic diseases, because they also have a lot of social and epigenetic factors um, uh, that are a lot more complex. And so I, I basically got a lot more interested in those, um, in those social mechanisms. Uh, so I decided to move to the humanities um, and decided to go for a PhD in French. Uh, so you, you moved from the study of chronic diseases to the humanities, which might be uh, an allegory of the uh, discussion we're having today. I absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, exactly why I went to the humanities, in fact, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> one might say. Okay. Um, so the... Let's begin with the most uh, difficult part, in a sense. So uh, we have a public debate in, in the French-speaking world, and mainly in France, but not exclusively, uh, where um, words having colonial in them uh, have tended to uh, emerge or re-emerge or be on, on the, the forefront of the scene or backstage. So for many decades after the uh, wars of independence, um, neo-colonial, neo-colonial, was uh, a term that had a, a very uh, specific um, meaning and reference, especially uh, in the description of what was sometimes called la France-Afrique. Uh, is sort of uh, after the fact, but still pretty colonial uh, system of relation uh, between um, some interests, financial and political interests uh, in metropolitan France and some uh, equivalent interests uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, especially, but not only sub-Saharan. Post-colonial, which is mainly a word coming from the English-speaking part of, the, uh, uh, of our world, post-colonial arrived as, uh, as a term in France uh, and beyond in the 2000s mainly. Uh, and with the term post-colonial that was coming after the uh, post-modern and many other post-something, uh, in the post-colonial, the idea was not so much to dwell on a bureaucratic, political, economical structure uh, in the way uh, it was uh, presented in the in the the language of neo-colonialism, but the idea was more to speak about the remnants or the persistence of some colonial logic, even though the the wars had ended uh, several decades ago. And so, um, when when I use that term of post-colonial in French, I often uh, in in the two thousands. I often put into brackets the past, the prefix, because it wasn't completely clear that this past was just a chronological uh, separation between a before and an after, that there was a kind of uh, continuation, but not a direct continuation, kind of uh, 
fantôme, a kind of ghostly presence, in a sense, or possessing presence. Decolonial, decolonial has become much more uh, usual uh, these days in, in some of those discourses uh, about France, Afrique, and so on. And it still relates to another uh, kind of uh, relation and to another kind of theoretical apparatus. So without having to uh, give an entire genealogy of these three words that would go beyond uh, the scope of our discussion, I was um, wondering if uh, you saw a sort of interest in sorting out some of the meanings of these terms, if you believe that there is something to be gained with one word rather than the other or with any one of them. And also, if in fact, when we say in French decolonial or postcolonial or neocolonial, we refer to the same things depending on uh, where we live. Uh, and if um, an intellectual uh, living in sub-Saharan Africa today who would speak and write uh, in, in French would necessarily uh, share the meaning of decolonial or postcolonial uh, that we see in other members of the diaspora, for instance. Um, yes, that's a really interesting question. So um, I do have to say, so yes, uh, in terms of the intellectual genealogy of the, that these words contain, postcolonial versus decolonial, there is somewhat of a distinction because postcolonial, you know, was kind of inaugurated by the Holy Trinity that is Edward Said, Homi Baba, and, you know, um, Spivak in the late 70s. Um, and as you very rightly said, it's it's less of a temporal marker, but more of a spectrality marker, right? The, a marker of um, all of the institutions and ideologies of this colonial legacy that we still bear with us today, that still haunts us. Um, but it was also seen, um, post-colonial theory was also seen as an analysis of discourse mainly. Now, the decolonial movement, when it emerged, emerged after Anibal Quijano's translation of his works from Spanish into English um, in the early 2000s, and then uh, the his ideas were taken over by Walter Mignolo. And so they understood decoloniality as more focused on a political praxis and practice. Um, I see it more as their focus was on revalorizing indigenous modes of governance and thought. Um, and um, I guess their move was more one of epistemological investigation. What is the colonial legacy that still haunts us and how can we decolonize it? Um, so that's how they emerged. But I do think largely that today the opposition or so-called opposition between decolonial and postcolonial is largely performative. Um, because the thing also is that when we think of so-called post-colonial thinkers, um, we cannot really reduce them to one coherent current, and neither can we do the same of decolonial uh, thinkers. So I, I see it more as a staging of a sort of internal war uh, rather than a real distinction uh, between the two, if that makes sense. And it's true that one critique we, we could make of the... Um not of the terms themselves, but of, of, of the use of, of those terms, is that there is a tendency to um, remain attached to the impossibility of going beyond. So paradoxically, even in some of the proponents, Said may have been a bit different, but even some of the proponents uh, of postcolonial studies and postcolonial theory, 
you could find an insistence on on the need to call everything post-colonial, uh, even looking backwards, but sometimes looking forwards. I know that uh, that that to me that was a very uh, prominent question uh, when I used post-colonial uh, with some kinds of. Uh, some kind of a critical caution uh, there, but uh, I ended up uh, in in my book on the empire of language with the, with the question uh, should should we be pastoral? And the answer was we we should really try to stop being pastoral, uh, which meant that we we had to acknowledge a pastoral and a colonial uh, persistence within decolonial studies and and. Um, among the thinkers in French who today uh, speak about decolonizing the mind, decolonizing the disciplines, the discourses, the behaviors, and so on, we also see uh, a similar inability to acknowledge sometimes the existence of th something that would be uh, a beyond or a past or an afterwards. And um, in these respects, even though the, the intellectual genealogies differ, we see a convergence uh, of such stances without, of course, reducing the postcolonial to one meaning or the decolonial to one meaning, because that's m much more complicated than that. Do you see a, a, a sort of semantic fracture or, uh, or um, possibilities for a divergence in, in the uses of those terms uh, depending on the location? I mean, is there... A, um, a more um, a, a different take that would be more uh, widespread in sub-Saharan Africa today about decolonial and postcolonial, or do we have no geographical reality that would sustain differences of meaning? Uh, yeah, th that's a great question. Um, I think there are some differences, uh, perhaps in the way uh, that. Uh, scholars from continental Africa, at least initially, and scholars from uh, the diaspora, or s scholars that are within the um, sort of American university system, talk about um, talk about their work. I think the the notion of race is a little bit more contested um, in the con on the continent. Um, the sort of uh, um, impulse to to see every social or ethical or political prog problem through the lens of race um, is something that a, a lot of scholars from Senegal uh, most famously have sort of relativized or contested, um, and they ask to rehistoricize that contest that 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 notion of race uh, when it comes to countries where the majority of people, for example, are black, as opposed to the African American experience, um, of course, of slavery and systemic oppression, and it being sort of um, in a whole sort of racial ecosystem that's very particular to the United States. Um, so there are some tensions there. In terms of post-colonial or decolonial, the thing also is that I think with the sort of global circulation of academic knowledge, I, I think these fractures are very, very minimal if non-existent today, um, I would say. But I, I see a fracture in the way that race is experienced and understood as a concept. Um, geographically it's an important consideration because um, in in this globalized circulation of ideas that also depends a lot on the uh, 
so-called new, uh, even though they are less new now, uh, means of communication, new technologies, and uh, so the social media, we, we see the emergence of a kind of global stratum where uh, that, that is almost like a kind of additional layer to the reality we all live in. And this additional layer oftentimes has a sort of American inflection or American uh, tone, uh, at least at the beginning. S but it would be uh, inaccurate to, uh, as some people unfortunately in France uh, argue, it would be inaccurate, I think, to, to see that as an Americanization, Americanization of, uh, of the mind. Uh, it's just that the globalized layer is almost autonomous and it has its American imprint for obvious reasons, because that's uh, mainly on the west coast of the US that things originate in, in this realm. But the American imprint is not exactly the same thing as a kind of Americanization of the mind. It's, it's more like the beginning of a process of uh, autonomy, of a, of, of a way of looking at political realities, creating both uh, strong disconnects between uh, historical realities on the ground and what and these kind of new globalized discourse, but also conversely, allowing, as we saw, for instance, in the Me Too movement that was pretty international, also allowing for effects in, in real life of something that at the beginning was mainly uh, a motto or a hashtag. Um, yeah, the fact that historically groups of people um, basically have been treated differentially um, because of where they come from and the attributes that are given to them in accordance with, wh with where they came from. So um, even though the word race was not used um, and it was very much still um, sort of associated maybe too much with uh, Nazi Germany and maybe also with the traumatic experience of France with Nazi Germany and the whole collaboration era. But um, there has been a differential treatment of Algerians, for instance, being probably one of the most obvious examples in the 1960s uh, with the with the massacre of Algerian um, of Algerians. Um, you know, so there has been a differential treatment of people based on what is perceived as an essential ethnic difference. Um, so I think that that distinction is fundamental. But, but what I will say also is that when it comes to, for example, talking about a country like Senegal or talking about a country like Morocco um, and using the word race, um, when we're talking about a country that has a lot of ethnic sessions, but where um, but where those uh, racial differences are not as articulated. You know, there's no whiteness versus blackness, for instance. There's no, um, although I, I can come to it, and when it comes to Morocco, it's a lot more complicated. Um, I think that there's definitely a different experience of being black or of being Arab when it comes to people that live in countries that are major majoritarily black or Arab, as opposed to the experience of being black in France or which is still different from the American experience uh, for obvious historical reasons. Um, so I think that there's definitely a sort of um, regional differentiation that needs to be maybe a little bit more nuanced and we can't just export ideas and apply them sort of wholesale, if that makes sense. So I do agree with you on, on that completely. 
And it's true that the, the structure of the globalized network is not so much about this level of differentiation. It's, it's more uh, what people call personalization, mm -hmm. the way you personalize your, uh, your iPhone or your, your computer, which is uh, black uh, background or gray background, basically. So it's personalization with very little uh, personal elements there. So it, it's, it's not the kind of differentiation we can, we can explain um, in social historical context and not the individual or sub uh, and super individual levels that we 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 see I, I really believe we should touch on on the question of race in in for instance senegal or or in morocco and and we will go to that because it's it's a very crucial uh, part of the discussion we should have uh, i guess maybe a bit before that a few remarks about uh, about the French context about race, since you you were raising the issue. Um, it's a bit strange to see that uh, today a defense of uh, republicanism would uh, include the idea that we cannot talk about race because race is fictional, and in many respects biologically race is, is a fiction and so on uh, and in the law as it is in france you don't have racial um, uh, discrimination in the way you could have racial discrimination in the law uh, in the south uh, in the southern part of the u.s uh, after uh, un until brown versus board of education and and uh, uh, the movements of, of black liberation in the 50s and 60s. However, race exists, uh, and if you spend your time, which is part of the uh, journalistic discourse in France, if you spend your time uh, discussing the racism of a candidate to the presidential election or saying that you should be anti-racist, it seems that you have a concept of race somewhere. And so I'm sometimes struck by the fact that um, among opponents of post-colonial and all the more so decolonial uh, thinkers in France, you see the idea that the problem with the decolonialists uh, come from the fact that um, race should not even be voiced. And I, and I believe that it's important to say that even if race is not a legal concept at one point, and of course race was a legal concept in many respects in the French colonial empire, but not today, it's a bit different. Even if race is not uh, a legal concept as such, it, still, it could still exist and therefore it could still be discussed. And um, it's not a word that would be taboo even if you don't believe in the reality, in the biological reality of race, for instance. So. You want to react to that because I saw. No, I mean, <laughs> I, just maybe. To the rest, yeah, yeah. It, just maybe uh, a note on the fictionality of concepts. I think in general, because it is something that comes back a lot in these um, in these kinds of debates. Um, saying that, um, of course, saying that race or that something is fictional does not mean that it's not necessarily real. Um, in the sense that race was legislated into reality, we could sort of make that point uh, but also that fictional concepts like justice have also uh, had reality effects and were the basis of political institutions so saying that something is fictional doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't have very real political consequences certainly right? certainly right. And, and 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 the fact that you would have uh, 
such an intense discussion about racism and anti-racism for decades in, 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 in France uh, would, in my view, uh, at least uh, justify the possibility of discussing the concept of race in an academic setting, uh, in journals, and so on. Uh, and the, the oddity is that uh, some defenders of what they believe to be universalism would, um, in a sense, prohibit the reference to race. Uh, and that's a, that's a strange uh, inference there. Or would consider that debating the concept of race is never academically justified or is always uh, a mode of political agitation, in a sense, but not not a discussion of, of, of reality. So that's... Uh Okay, um, so uh, I think this is where, like, for example, the category of indigenous is very interesting to me because etymologically speaking, indigenous comes from endo, which is in or within, plus genus, which is from uh, the Latin verb geniere, which means to beget or produce. So really, in its strictest sense of the term, indigenous is what is sprung from the land, right? It's just a native to a certain country. Um, and this term indigenous did not take on the, the sort of very racialized uh, meaning that it did until the 17th century onwards, and especially during the colonial expansion, uh, during the 18th and 19th centuries, where this term was invested with a kind of like almost eugenic understanding of a distinctive group of people to which we um, also attribute moral deficiencies to which we attribute a certain um, uh, uh, well moral deficiencies that are naturalized right through eugenics uh, and against which the colonizer or the European is going to be differentiated through his civilization or his whiteness. Um, so it was a way to sort of crystallize and fix alterity um, in a colonial context where the colonizer and the colonized were actually living in sort of violent proximity uh, to one another. Uh, and so I think the need to define the other uh, in such a way um, uh, becomes especially urgent when they're trying to differentiate themselves from another and dis distantiate themselves from uh, another in a context where they are always in violent proximity with the other. Now, like with negritude, um, indigeneity. Maybe I, will, I will interrupt you uh, just just here to to add add something. Um, in, in in the legal and political texts uh, de defining the uh, populations of uh, of Algeria um, between 1865 when Napoleon III is, is still in command and 1870 uh, uh, the date when the uh, decret crémieux are promulgated mm -hmm. and and the law allowing uh, the the Jewish population to to gain citizenship um, when you look at the texts, uh, the, the term indigène uh, appears, but if we translate that into, uh, into English, you, you clearly see that there is uh, a play between the adjective indigène mm -hmm. and the noun indigène. It's the same uh, term in, in, in French. It would be indigène and indigenous for the adjective mm -hmm. uh, in, in English. And the moment, uh, so in 1865, the legal text speaks about indigenes, some of them being uh, called Israelite and others being called Muslim. So being subdefined by their 
supposed uh, allegiance to a religion. And when the Décret Crémieux, uh, a part of the so-called indigenous population is being given citizenship, and here the, the Jews, then uh, indigene is uh, becoming an adjective. So the people who are being um, granted citizenship are the indigenous Israelites, no longer the uh, indigenes who are Israelites, but the indigenous Israelites. And these move from the uh, noun l'indigène to the adjective indigène corresponds in fact to a new category of indigeneity, uh, one that is less essential or less uh, on the side of the concept. Because what is becoming essential is to be a Jew, and therefore uh, mm -hmm. the Jews could be part of the, uh, of the French community because there are Jews who are part of the French yeah. community. So it's also interesting to see that very early on, yeah. this very linguistic shift, uh, just a question of position, mm -hmm. is in indigène first or second, is corresponding to uh, fragmentation of, of legal status and political uh, existences. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, and I have no doubt, and, and this is kind of the same point uh, that we're both making, which is that indigenous was a concept that, was, that has been reappropriated and re reinvested, you know, uh, with different um, historical circumstances and is always a moving frontier. Um, however, I will just say, and this is why um, I wanted to talk about the etymology of the word indigenous, that, for example, we don't see French people being referred to as indigenous, but they are indigenous to their own land. I mean, at least some of them are. Does that make sense? So indigenous is still being deployed somewhat strategically in a colonial context. In, in the colonial context, since right. now we, we see precisely this completely new strategy of defining Francais de Souge uh, indigenous French, which Absolutely. is something that happened in, in my lifetime, really. Absolutely. I mean, nobody would, would use indigene to, uh, to refer to mm -hmm. uh, a supposedly French stock uh, no, in the French population. Ab absolutely, absolutely. And um, um, also, and, and this was sort of the, the continuation of my point, is that is that like with negritude, indigeneity has then evolved and its valence had has been reverted into a positive valence, you know, through the postcolonial slash decolonial um, efforts, you know, um, and now it's, <laughs> I would say if I had to give a sort of common definition of what indigeneity means within these fields, it's basically the group of people that have experienced the, um, that have had the historical experience of modernity as that of their systemic effacement. I think that's probably the largest or most common definition that this uh, that this term has today. But it is true that, you know, it is a highly strategic term that has been deployed once and again by opposing ideologies. And I think that's very, um, that's very important to keep in mind. Uh, not to say that because it is a fiction, we can't use it as a decolonial praxis, but to say that when we come to a context like, let's say, North Africa, this term becomes very fraught and we see a little bit its limits because the indigenous people, technically, um, in the strictest sense of the term, to North Africa are the Berbers, which comes from the Greek barbaros, meaning the strangers. And barbaros itself, for the Greeks, also meant the Celts and the Iberians and the Gauls. <laughs> so it meant a whole bunch of other people. Um, um, we, we are not completely sure about the etymology, but no likelihood 
barbaros in classical Greek comes from the fact that the people who do not speak Greek when they speak for Greek listeners do ba 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 ba, <laughs> and so barbaros is just right. uh, yes. you know uh, right. a nickname for everything that is not fluent in, in Greek. Right. So that that means right. many people. Absol absolutely, absolutely, um, and so I think it, it's just for me. Um, in the North African context, the Berbers then become opposed to the Arabs during the Arab conquest and, and invasion in the Middle Ages. Um, as And the Arabs, by definition, are the people who are not from... <laughs> you know, uh, North Africa, who were the con the conquerors of North Africa. And so it's very interesting then when we use the term, for example, today of indigenous modes of knowledge and decolonizing Morocco, for instance, what is it exactly that we're decolonizing? What are those indigenous modes of knowledge? Are we talking about um, uh, the Arab uh, Muslim tradition? Are we talking about Berber rituals and practices? What exactly are we talking about? Uh, so that's the first uh, question. And also, uh, I should I should remind rem remind everyone also of the of the internal tensions between Berbers and Arabs, uh, which has recurred right after independence, where there was what what, what is called as the Siba in in Morocco, where the Berber tribes really tried to reconquer their independence, but the monarchy was imposed and centralized uh, and kind of won that battle. And then um, that's a recurrence uh, that has haunted the history of Morocco. Uh, very recently in 2016, the reef movement of protest in the north of Morocco, um, uh, which was seen as a separatist movement, uh, also sort of brought back this, this scission, this ethnic scission and these tensions and conflicts between these people. And then if we add on to that, within a global uh, mass migration crisis, the arrival of West Africans or, you know, um, Central Africans to Morocco and the way that they are added to the mix and the e economy of sort of racialized privilege that is going on there uh, or oppression, then we have a very, very composite picture. And we can't just say, well, let's decolonize Morocco and have indigenous modes, revalorize indigenous modes of being and try to disentangle what is indigenous and what is not. So to me, that's where the limits of that um, dichotomy between West and non-West sort of uh, emerges. And so to me, I think we should move more, uh, less into trying to deconstruct and under trying to find what is, what is the colonial legacy and what is not, and try to move towards what is that we're trying to accomplish. Is it retributive justice? Is it giving back economic sovereignty to these countries? Then how do we build that up? What are all the practices that need to change, colonial or not colonial? Because the other side of that coin, of course, is that romanticizing and a romanticizing, for example, Arabs as having not having their own practices of violence and systemic violence is, of course, uh, historically not true, especially when you talk, you talk, for example, about the status of women in these societies. So just saying indigenous versus non-indigenous does not really capture these complexities. Um, if, if the goal, though, is liberation, if the goal is justice, if the goal is giving equal opportunity to women, then we can't really think only about these categories. We also have to think about what is it about 
um, Arab Muslim traditional ways of understanding and power struggle, power dynamics that also need to change. Um, and the last thing I will say is that the other irony, of course, is that we need to decolonize um, to not be haunted by this violent colonial legacy, but at the same time, the model of justice that we're operating on um, that is based on liberal democracies, which are themselves based on the notion of a nation state, is a very Western tradition, in fact. So we are also... Um, and, and v very recent, even in the West. Absolutely, well. absolutely. So we can't just say that everything Western has to be sort of demonized. So we have to be sort of more strategic about what, what, it, what, what is it, what is the aim of that decolonization? What are we trying to do? How are we trying to promote justice, I guess? Oh, we're going to, to explore that in, in, in a few minutes because it, it, of course it matters since it's not only our present, but the, the way we, built a f we build up a, a future. Uh, it seems to me to, to stay with Morocco and, and, and Africa, um, at least for a few additional minutes, that implicit in what you were describing was also the relation uh, between the so-called Arab world uh, and, and slavery as an institution. Uh, and so I was also wondering if uh, you could see in Africa a discourse, for instance, about the black populations uh, in North Africa I mean, the, and, and the interrelation between these past uh, pra these past practices and the uh, other forms of slavery attached to uh, the colonial expansion of Europe mm. you mean between I mean uh, to formulate slightly different differently you have a population in North Africa that could be called a black population at least in the American sense maybe in the French sense mm. um, does this population have any reality politically or symbolically uh, speaking today? One thing. And then uh, do we see uh, in the intellectual and political discourse in Africa, uh, in, in French since we are most about that, uh, do we see um, a discourse about the importance, the past importance of slavery or the uh, influence on this? And, we're not going to, to retain what I'm about to say in the in the podcast, but very recently I saw, I don't know if you ever saw that, uh, so a, a guy from Africa who, who is doing deliveries uh, in France. Uh, most, I, I don't know, I mean, uh, if you saw that, but over the last two years, most people doing delivery and, and, and et cetera are, are people from Sub-Saharan Africa who very recently uh, arrived in the country. So you have that guy who is being uh, uh, attacked uh, by uh, uh, a young guy from uh, Algeria. That's how he presents himself. And, and, and the guy is beginning to uh, give all the insults he, he can against that black guy. Uh, we enslaved you for centuries. We were selling you asshole. And, and, and then a black woman is filming the, the scene and he's going on. And, and so suddenly you see this Algerian guy in his early 20s, proud of and clearly saying that he's proud of his Algerian uh, identity because his, he was, <laughs> his ancestors in his fantasy were uh, enslaving 
the blight. So it, it was very strange. I mean, in terms of let's speak about intersectional uh, alliance there. <laughs> it was a very strange moment in these videos. I'm not going to retain that for the year. But the discussion of, of the black population and, and, and the relation to slavery uh, seen from Africa, because we know that when it's seen from uh, France, it's a catastrophe, basically. But seen from Africa, is, is there any traction there? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, also, uh, you know, language is always a huge signifier of things. And um, in Arabic, the word for black is habd. It's not the color black, uh, which is Eswed, but it's Abd, which means slave, actually. And so slave actually still is a metonymy for blackness in in um, in the current language, uh, Arabic language. And so I think that that definitely does uh, signal just how entrenched also that systemic racism is. And, you know, um, the Arabs, uh, you know, the, the, the Arab slave trade uh, went on for centuries, um, even before um, the Atlantic Triangle started. And so, of course, we can't deny and we can't also reduce all racism to a colonial legacy. I mean, mm -hmm. the Arabs, you know, like any imperialist country, <laughs> uh, like any imperialist identity, um, you know, they, um, they obviously had a lot of, they needed ways to differentiate people. They needed ways to um, rationalize their hegemony and uh, that's one of the reasons they used. In terms of Morocco, I think recently people have become a lot more vocal about this. So it's something that growing up, I never um, heard of it. Although, of course, we could always see that that the um, um, pigmentation of Moroccans actually uh, covers a really wide spectrum from the Sahrawis all the way to the people in the north to the Berbers who are sometimes whiter than the whites in terms of skin. So... Um, uh, ethnically, just a huge variety. And I think, um, uh, but recently, um, a lot of uh, people have been denouncing the colorism. They've been denouncing the fact that they are called abd slaves, you know, that they are, uh, you know, they have been, they have had an experience of systemic racism in Morocco um, that is still going on. However, and I will say this, there's also a marked difference between people whose skin is black, but who are Moroccan and understand and master the cultural and social codes of Morocco versus the newly arriving uh, migrants, uh, and they also want to d distantiate themselves vis-a-vis -vis the migrants, and the migrants are really extremely vilified, and it's mo mostly um, visual markers of how they're dressed, how they talk, can they speak Darija or can they not speak Darija, um, and those markers are just as important as just the color of their skin, but yes, there's an absolutely horrifying level of racism um, also because Morocco is of course one of the transit countries to Europe and Europe has outsourced uh, uh, in a lot of ways it's policing to Morocco Morocco is like a lot of other countries are getting money um, uh, to do this work um, and uh, there's been multiple instances of uh, black migrants being slaughtered uh, or really lynched. I, I think that's the word that should be used um, by the local population also um, who transfer all of their resentment uh, for their economic precarity onto them. Uh, so, yes, of course, it's a very, very complicated, um, multi-directional uh, uh, problems, problem that needs to be solved. 
could, could we speak a little about ethnic differences in Africa? I mean, it's of course, it's a very vast topic that would yeah. be uh, for an entire podcast. Uh, our species, Homo sapiens, uh, uh, lived for a very, very long time exclusively in Africa. And, and because of that, there are, of course, all kinds of genetic and, and ethnic differences in, in Africa in, in, in a way that might be even more marked than in other parts of the world. And the ethnic mosaic of uh, the, uh, the African population is, is very, very complex. And, and uh, a part of the colonial strategies uh, consisted in many respects in using one ethnic division against the others, uh, sometimes with um, alliances that might be perceived to be strange. I remember having read in a late 19th century a French colonial um, textbook, in a sense, uh, how to be a, a ruler in, in Algeria, basically. It's not the exact title, but it's something like that. I remember this description of the... Uh, Berber peasants uh, uh, compared with the uh, peasants in, in Auvergne uh, with the added reflection that this population was wonderful uh, because it was almost like the French stock. And so um, we, we know that in, in, all, in all countries, uh, when you had an imperial power coming from Europe, uh, you had... Uh, a very shrewd a way of uh, intensifying differences uh, along ethnic lines. However, it sometimes seems uh, that in a certain uh, public discourse today in France that racism is um, reduced to an imperialistic colonial invention coming from, from Europe. And that, in fact, we would have virtually no racism in all of Africa. Uh, if we had seen a continent without the intrusion of uh, imperialism and European imperialism. It seems that it's, it's difficult to deny the role of uh, imperial uh, European countries in uh, solidifying and, and strengthening divisions. But it's also uh, a bit disingenuous to do as if the history of Africa today could be reduced to the outcome of the colonial experience. Mm -hmm. And it's even demeaning for what Africa is and for what it has been. So mm -hmm. could we? that's where we are coming back to uh, an idea you were raising before. What does it mean to speak about race and or skin color in Senegal, for instance? Do, do we only consider today that we have a discussion that either does not take place or is just the consequence of imperial uh, power uh, ruled by France, or do we have many different logics, many different approaches uh, competing with each other in a way that is not always uh, easy to grasp? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, th I think so. I think, I think there's a lot of competing logics. I mean, um, I don't want to say too much about Senegal in particular. I mean, of course, like f for for instance, um, you know, the hegemon is the, the, the hegemonization of Wolof as the kind of lingua franca of Senegal when there's many other ethnics, uh, eth um, ethnic groups that speak a lot of other languages. Maybe one of the most 
major, uh, majoritarian of the minority languages being Serer, but uh, there are many others. Um, that has raised a lot of questions, and that is also a, a source of conflict and tensions there in Senegal. Um, it's very interesting because I think also it depends on how we understand ethnic identity, and I think... Um, and how we understand different ethnic conflicts. So to go back to this notion of race um, and slavery, because that's um, that's kind of the, the, the example I have in mind, um, is that uh, in the Middle Ages, when someone was a habd or a slave, uh, they could be freed. And once they're freed, they're actually um, not seen in the same way. And so even though I think the ethnicity of someone is a determining factor. Um, it was also a term that was a lot more flexible and not a lot more provisional and a lot more dependent on the function of that individual, um, their social function, function or status. Um, I mean, it's 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 usually what we see in the ancient world that right. that slavery as a exactly. status and and uh, emancipation tend to be conceived in in a way that does not align with what we consider mm -hmm. to be uh, the institution of slavery in modern times in the colonial experience uh, after the Renaissance, basically. Right. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I mean, the Roman Empire had a sort of a, a very similar logic. Um, you pointed toward uh, at one point earlier on you you pointed toward uh, a question of of ethnic differences and and race in Senegal and in sub-saharan Africa but we don't need to uh, we don't yeah. need to cover everything so okay. it's it's uh, um, I mean Sort of the only thing that I would have to say about the hegemonization of, of, of Wolof is that um, um, it was also tied to economic factors, you know, that uh, people who spoke Wolof were also merchants. And so they, you know, there were mechanisms that spread the language more. Um, but um, yes, I think the category of race as, um, for example, talking about blackness versus whiteness just is not a very useful category to understand the nature of that conflict and to understand the nature of that tension between the Serres and, you know, for instance. Mm -hmm. So let, let's speak about where we we are and where we could go <laughs> from, from there in yeah. France. So um, it's not only a question of, between France and Africa, of course. I mean, France today uh, is is a territory and a country where you have uh, a vast multiplicity of, of, of uh, populations. Uh, you still have the uh, the history of France and the uh, the presence of the past, and it's perceptible everywhere. Uh, at the level of the monuments, in the system of education, but also in very informal ways of talking, of speaking, uh, and so on. So you have really an inscription uh, within language, within social bodies, and uh, a multiplicity of uh, origins of different stories, different histories. On the top of that, we have this kind of globalized layer that is now common to every one of us, or most of us, that comes with uh, a different logic. So. It's no mystery uh, that uh, there are tensions uh, within uh, France vis-à-vis uh, -vis, uh, 
the colonial, post-colonial, globalized uh, state of uh, the mixing of populations. And it's, um, it's as if we were facing a situation that would be defined by uh, concepts and it's um, uh, I don't attribute it any kind of symbolic value but those concepts uh, at least four of them that I can see are uh, beginning with an R in English and it, it happens to be uh, the same thing in French but it seems that vis-a-vis -vis these presence of the past and the building of a future that would be ethnically and uh, culturally more uh, plural or more pluralistic than it, it may have been in the past. It seems that we are facing with choices in terms of uh, repentance, uh, reconciliation, reparation, resentment. I would s just add a few words on each of these terms. I mean, uh, when in the 2000s, uh, a more active discussion of the colonial past and of the uh, present consequences of, of, of that experience uh, arose in the public debate in, in, in French. Of course, we had decades and decades, and if you include Saint-Domingue and Haiti, almost two centuries of discussion of the colonial experience. But it's true that in the 2000s, you had a rise of, of these uh, inquiry about the colonial dimension of, uh, of, of the French experience. Daniel Lefebvre uh, wrote a book, uh, Pour en finir avec la repentance coloniale, and um, beyond the symptom of that book, there was clearly a resistance toward uh, um, a view of the colonial past where uh, a part of the population would have to show repentance and would have to repent from, for the past. And uh, repentance could be criticized uh, in many different ways. Uh, it could be seen as a sort of quasi-religious uh, behavior. Uh, it could be seen as uh, just a symbolic gesture. I mean, you repent and nothing changes. So it could be uh, basically criticized from uh, left and from the left and, and uh, from from the right. Um, reparation, reconciliation are a bit different in this respect. Uh, reparation uh, is more American than it is French. However, it appears, and there's this idea of maybe uh, paying back, in the strict sense of the term, uh, the descendants of the people who have been most uh, clearly exploited in, in a colonial regime. So that could be the uh, descendants of, uh, of, of, of the slave populations, for instance. It may be worth... Uh, mentioning that um, in the 19th century, uh, in these contexts, in these colonial contexts, reparation was seen as the money Haiti uh, owed to France. And so the country of Haiti uh, gave a lot of money to, to uh, the former owners of, of France, of, of slaves uh, who uh, were in Saint-Domingue in Haiti. So reparation, financial reparations vis-à-vis -vis the end of slavery is in a sense not new. It, in the 19th century, it was seen that the people who, who should pay would be the uh, descendants of slaves, or in the slaves themselves. But today, uh, that's, that's just the opposite direction. But reparation is not uh, a late invention in this, in this debate. 
And uh, reconciliation uh, might seem uh, from the outside as a better goal, uh, or maybe not contrary to reparation, but a better goal in, in the sense that it could build up um, a future where uh, the past would not be obliterated, but the past would not necessarily command or determine the future. And that is the uh, that is a constant reference to uh, the practice of post-apartheid uh, South Africa and to what uh, Nelson Mandela was doing in his uh, country. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's difficult not to see that even today South Africa may not be as reconciled as what uh, people could believe it, it, it would be thanks to such vast efforts. Then uh, we saw recently uh, a report uh, led by uh, and written by Benjamin Stora on, on behalf of uh, Emmanuel Macron's uh, mission uh, about relations between Algeria and France in terms of memory and in terms precisely of these uh, necess- necessary reconciliation. And that report may have left many of us unconvinced, I would say. We could not even forget that Alain Soral, who is from the far right, is uh, the head of a movement called Egalité et Reconciliation. So just to say that reconciliation uh, might be a much better term, but it seems to be slightly amorphous or too polysemic right now. Resentment, on the other hand, which might appear to us as the worst option in, in, a, in the construction of the future, resentment looks like um, the shared experience of many people in France these days, that there is resentment on every ground against any other fraction of the population. And since we have this kind of transatlantic viewpoint in, in the podcast, it's difficult not to see that resentment was pretty strong and is pretty strong in the US where we live. And so what do we do of those four hours? Should we pick one uh, concept or should we eliminate all of them? Should we put faith or hope in uh, any of those ways to go beyond a uh, sort of immobility in the repetition of the past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that okay. was long. Um, no, I, I will I will say um, hmm. Okay, uh, multiple things. In terms of repentance, uh, reparation, Repentance and reparation, I see them as more focused on that labor of memory on the past, right? So the thing that's really interesting about that, but also about resentment, uh, psychologically resentment is is a call for justice, right? Almost. It's like the uh, the body's like reflective, reflexive, um, almost instinctual sort of indignation in the face of something, right? But the problem with that call for justice is that I think by focusing too much on the past, what we are obscuring, in my view, is that we are obscuring the very real present economic relationships that are actually underlying a lot of the geopolitical dynamic between, for example, France and Algeria or France and the Congo on the one hand, and also... um, within France, uh, who is being left out economically and who is not. And so sometimes I do feel like ideological discourses and the focus on history and memory tends to, whether consciously or unconsciously, 
it obscures um, the real perpetuation of these inequalities. So that's what I'm going to say about these. Um, reconciliation, um, yes, I agree with you, the South African uh, model might not be the best. I was really interested in the in in what happened in Rwanda, um, because after the Rwandan genocide in 1992, um, they had a really exceptional historical situation, which is that the Hutus uh, who massacred the Tutsis. Um, That massacre was sort of staged through the radio. It was encouraged through the radio. It was an administrative, administratively led and encouraged massacre. But it was done by people on the street, uh, getting machetes and basically massacring their neighbors. And so we have we we ended up with almost half of the population trying to massacre the other half. And so after in the aftermath of that, we had the sort of um, paradox, which is that. If we were to talk about our traditional understanding of justice and punishment um, and basically jail these people, we would have to jail half the population, which logistically is not even tenable because the other half would, ha would have to enslave themselves to just making those prisons work. Um, so that um, model of retributive justice hit its natural limit. Uh, in some sense. And so they had to find other ways. And so they had reconciliation projects, and those took many forms. Uh, and they had what they called the Kakaka courts, which are like indigenous forms of uh, of justice and conflict resolution uh, in order to try and reconcile those people because also those people went back to live next to their neighbors, the Hutus, who were who maybe massacred their parents or massacred their sister. Uh, I mean, we're talking about a very real sort of um, ethical and moral dilemma. Um, and I think Rwanda is one of the models um, that at least was partially successful in that. And I think if we look a little bit more onto that, and that's what I'm trying, what I'm interested in exploring, is how the Rwandan experience of an understanding of justice um, can inform these dialogues that we are having about what it means to reconcile. Um, and then for resentment, I would say that um, the paradox with resentment is that also when we are in a resentful mode, at once we are calling for justice, but we are always re-triggering the same trauma. So we are repeating uh, the past, right, in the present. And so um, as uh, the philosopher Cynthia Fleury, you know, she just published this book called Sigi la Mer uh, about the politics of resentment and basically the necessity for the person who wants to heal to somehow find a way to transcend resentment and sublimate it. So. I guess the difficulty there is how do we transcend resentment without um, doing away with the imperative of justice that it calls for? I think that's the, the yeah. No, it's, it, it's related to what I call um, identity politics 2.0, that, that is uh, these new conception um, of of identity as the uh, mere outcome uh, of an oppression and in such a way that you can no longer it's a trap and that you can no longer uh, emancipate yourself or liberate yourself from oppression or if you do that you're losing your identity that's the trap of defining identities uh, political identities as the mere outcome of an oppression then you have a choice either you're free and you're betraying yourself as your identity, or you keep your identity because you're proud of it, and that's what is supposedly very important. And then you will, in fact, 
reinstate and reinforce your own oppression because you need it for the the build-up of your identity, which is uh, a mistake that is uh, now very common, very widespread, not only in the US, but, uh, but beyond. And resentment probably uh, plays a role in the uh, machinery uh, of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, to go back to the uh, very, I mean, the remark that you made, which I partially agree with, which is, yes, I, I think definitely the being stuck in, in a sort of uh, uh, discourse of um, uh, colonial versus anti-colonial um, um, systemic oppression versus not. Um, I think, again, for me, the difficulty is how to get out of a self-victimizing stance, but also without sacrificing the need for justice. And, and the way that I see it, again, is that I think we also hit a limit with... Um, an ideological discourse that also thinks of history as intellectual history. And I think if we go back to a more historical materialist perspective and we talk about the real um, sort of neoliberal economy in which we are evolving, which partially has been instituted actually during the colonial times and is very much a colonial legacy. But I think as long as Africa will be uh, the continent of extraction of resources primarily, um, and as long as those uh, resources are added, you know, their surp- surplus value is being added elsewhere and then being sort of transferred back, as, as long as we have that unequal politi- uh, economic system, we're not going to be able to really move forward with um, ensuring the economic sovereignty of these countries. But of course, the problem is that locating responsibility is at once a really easy task and a really difficult task. It's not just the West, it's actually a shared responsibility, but globally, because we can't really think about um, the current economic situation without thinking about China, for instance, and its investment, its very aggressive investment in Africa right now. we also can't think, we can't uh, not think about uh, so-called indigenous elites um, within those countries and the way that they are using those resources uh, and they are accumulating their, those resources and creating um, even more economic differentiation between them and the rest of the people. So I think that responsibility is definitely, ha- ha- everybody has to be accountable uh, for it. And I actually think that if we think about it this way, for me, the best way for us to become conscious is to know to how much we are interdependent with one another. And it sounds very sort of cheesy and kind of, you know, um, point, but I think very, very concretely, I think the problem is that by saying, for example, well, um, France has had a colonial legacy and it needs to repent to Africa for uh, its colonial past and injecting that, again, into a past, what it does for French people is that they don't understand, for instance, for anybody who uses a computer, for example, um, it does nothing to make them understand how much they are still interdependent with um, on African 
you know, the extraction of, of African resources. I will give you just one concrete example, which is, you know, tantalum, which is um, uh, a mineral that's uh, derived from coltan or cobalt, which are two minerals that you find very commonly in electronic devices that you use every single day. Those are being extracted majoritarily from mines in the Congo. And the way th the ways that they are being extracted and the price that is put on them determines how much you're going to buy your computer, for instance, and whether you can afford it or not. And I think by reminding people that Africa is not just this really distant geographical entity, but also distant temporally because it goes back to a colonial past, but that it's very much a present conundrum and that we as consumers, whether we're French or Chinese or Moroccan, that we are responsible for where um, these um, um, resources are extracted and how they are extracted and the consequences of that. I think that's our best chance, actually. Uh, in geopolitical terms, it, it seems that um, in at least in the public opinion and or the opinion of the the economic and political leaders in, in, in this world today, uh, we see something like a tripartition uh, in terms of superpower. We no longer speak about hyperpower. Uh, one would be the European Union or maybe Europe in general, since the United Kingdom is no longer a part of the EU, but still in a kind uh, of European state, uh, the United States and China, of course, there are many other uh, political uh, and economical uh, actors. Um, Japan could come to, to the mine and, and so on. Australia. In this idea of a tripartition of the superpowers, uh, two aspects are a bit uh, strange, uh, I would say. One is that nobody would think of even mentioning Africa as a superpower, maybe not now, but at some point in the future. So it's as if with this China, Europe, United States, you still have a kind of three con continents and you still have this idea that Africa is not there. So Africa is being. But as you were uh, saying, uh, if we are thinking of a computer that is being partly designed in the US or maybe in, in Europe, uh, built in China, sold, most of the components will still come from Africa. So Africa is this kind of invisible continent. Mm -hmm. And um, China, uh, the uh, several countries of, from Europe play a huge role in, in the uh, economy or in the political uh, systems uh, within Africa. And it's as if on top of these extraction sites that Af the, the African continent would be, you, Africa was both invisible and a kind of base for um, these competition between the superpowers. Even in a sense for the US with the uh, term African-American where Africa still exists at a symbolic level. I know that speaking about the black population uh, is, is more updated, but still. So it's as if Africa were were there and, and nowhere, in fact, that there was no real acknowledgement after decades and decades of discussions on those topics, no real acknowledgement at a geopolitical level that the reality of Africa could be other than just this uh, 
dark continent to go back to the old uh, definition. Um, and I was wondering if um, I don't think Pan-Africanism is uh, on the rise these days, but I was wondering if we could see uh, today in the uh, African diaspora or among African intellectuals and, and actors, if we could see uh, a desire to reconstruct this kind of African future um, within this world stage that you could be uh, interested in mentioning and discussing. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I think that there is also, there's a good deal of innovation coming from Africa that might not have the kind of um, global media resonance that others of these countries do, but that, um, you know, uh, African countries um, usually from women or from people who are actually not necessarily the most privileged come some very innovative solutions about how to recycle plastic, um, how to, you know, do things in a very sustainable way. So I, I think that there's a great deal of innovation happening even there. It's just that it doesn't have the, the kind of global staging um, uh, that I think it ought to have. And then in terms intellectually, I think that um, uh, Felwin Sar, for instance, or Ashin Bembe, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to um, sort of uh, reinscribe Africa in its um, to the extent of its full relevance um, to the rest of the world. And um, I think Ashin Bembe just recently came out with something about how to rethink the world through Africa, uh, for instance. So he's doing that epistemologically speaking um, as well. Um, and also, I think there's also an internal competition for Africa. You know, I think, you know, uh, um, Morocco, for instance, is definitely uh, trying to gain the African markets. The African market is huge for Morocco. It's, um, uh, it's probably its future, uh, in fact. Um, and you also have a sort of hegemonic sort of not power struggle, but there are tensions between um, West Africa and especially Senegal. Um and East Africa, on the other hand, and South Africa, on the other hand. So on the four, on the four poles of Africa, I think there's also internal struggles going on. Um, but I, I do think that economically, um, I think the problem is what's going to happen if we talk about the real economic position of Africa, because it actually underlies all of that global economy in a very real way. Um, but what's going to happen if we pay le prix juste for those minerals, as opposed to kind of almost steal them? What's going to happen to the margins of these uh, global companies? So I think it just has some such real, Africa is actually so at the center of, of all of these economies that their only way to thrive in the current economic system is to obscure it. But it's actually at the center of it um, in some ways. And I, I think a lot of people are becoming a lot more vocal about this. So, so th merci beaucoup, uh, Iman. Thank you very much for, for what you, you discussed wi with us. Uh, there's no possibility for us to speak uh, in one hour also of all the... Um, problems uh, entangled in, in the past uh, and the present and the future of uh, structure of oppression and be it in France or anywhere else.
but uh, I thought we had a great discussion together and I thank you for having been with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was great. Thank you. You were listening to Vive la Différence, a podcast brought to you by the French Studies Program at Cornell University through a special grant awarded by the French Embassy to the United States. The opinions voiced by the host and the guests do not necessarily reflect those of the French Studies Program, the French government, Cornell University, and so on. In fact, we all try to speak for ourselves. The music was by Carole Beffa, with special thanks to him. This episode was produced by Jacob Matthews. Au revoir, à bientôt.